to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Uh, we're, we're back in our Luke series, and um, we picked up last week Luke 11, we've, the first half of the Lord's Prayer, and tonight we're going to focus on the second half of it. Uh, this prayer is um, it, it's obviously great for so many reasons, and there's so many things, there's so many layers that we could uh, take when we're studying this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Jesus uh, said in response to his disciples' request, teach us how to pray. Um, if you think about it in this way, you could almost say that this, this half of the prayer that we're going to cover tonight is, is a, uh, a shift in pronouns. I know that I thought about calling the sermon that, but I thought no one might uh, be interested in a sermon called the shift in pronouns. But it really is that because the first half of the prayer is, uh, is it's you, you know, uh, our, our Father in heaven, you know, hallowed be your name. It's, it's you and your, your kingdom come. And then the second half in Luke's version is, uh, maybe sparse, and maybe because Matthew added uh, familiar doxology to the end of it to kind of round it out, or whatever the reasons may be. But the, the, the second half of this prayer shifts now from you, your, or your talking to God to saying, uh, our and us, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, and, and, and lead us not into temptations. Uh, I am sad to admit that uh, our youngest son has now learned the most dangerous pronoun of all. And his sisters have played a big part in his learning this pronoun, but it's the word mine. And, uh, and so, though he can barely say a few words, little Jonas has learned how to say, mine, mine, mine. And he, and he points to that, you know. And, and there's something in us, maybe. Uh, maybe it's our sin nature. I don't know what it is. But early on, we learned to think in terms of me, mine. Me, my, and mine. This is, this is me, my, and mine, you know. And, and the Lord's Prayer opens us up from that and says, no, 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 our and us. And so in a very real way, this prayer shifts from praise, you know, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, to petitions, to saying, okay, let's begin to ask God for stuff. But you know what? If we're honest, probably all of us struggle with knowing how to ask God for stuff or if we should ask God for stuff. And, and, and maybe you're familiar with a couple of different polarities in the, in the church world of the way people talk about how we should pray or how we should ask God for stuff. And so some people say, well, don't ask him for anything. In fact, just don't, don't bother. All you should do, all, all that prayer is, is praise. And so prayer is, is praise without music, you know. So, so just, just get used to it and say nice things about God and then be done with it. How dare you ask him for anything, you miserable worm? Don't bother him. God is a crotchety old, you know, grandfather in the study and that the kids, the grandkids never want to upset. Don't, isn't it? And and sometimes, you know, you get this picture of God. By the way, some people talk about it, you know, like, isn't it enough that he gave you breath this morning? You ungrateful rat. Why would you ask for anything more? You know, geez, sorry. Okay, I won't, I won't, I won't ask for anything, you know. But you know what's funny is, um, there, we, we've discovered, or not we, not, not like me, but archaeologists have discovered psalms that were written by the Egyptians. One of the amazing distinctions between, say, an Egyptian psalm and a Jewish psalm is that Egyptian psalms never ask their God for anything. 
In fact, they're told all you can do is sing to God for his attributes, for who he is. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a, there's a movement within the, the, the church world that is trying to insist that we should never praise God for what he does. We should only praise God for who he is. And, and, and as if there was this division and say, well, just focus on God's attributes and how dare you, wretched sinner, object of God's wrath, ask anything of him. You're nothing. Don't bother him. Just praise him. I want to tell you that that has more to do with an Egypt, more in common with an Egyptian or pagan, should we say, approach to worship than it does with a Jewish or Christian vision of prayer. That the Hebrews were well-versed in asking their God for stuff, in praising him not only for who he is, but for what he does. This God is a God who acts. This God is a God who does stuff for his people. Now, if you've paid attention to kind of different voices, or, you know, you, you'll be aware that some people have taken that and swung it to this other side and said, well, of course God wants you to have that Lexus. He loves you, doesn't he? And of course God wants you to have, you know, Lord, should we add that addition to our house or should we give to some missionaries? Of course you want me to add the addition to our house, Lord. Thanks so much that you love us. You know, and we kind of do this, nothing evil about additions to your house, but it's just there's this assumption that God wants us to have it all. Of course he does. And so, so either he's these, this crotchety grandfather guy that we shouldn't bother with our requests, or he's this doting sugar daddy grandfather. You know, it's like, oh, you want more? Sorry, sugar, that sounds bad. Uh, like, a, 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 a grandpa that's always giving the grandkids candy, you know? Um, uh, <laughs> um, Anyway, so I, I was having lunch with, with uh, one, of, one of you here, I won't mention names, who, who told me that his rule with his grandkids, he says to his kids, look, with the grandkids, there are only guidelines. There are no rules with me, you know. So, and then he gives, it, gives them back when he's done. I understand that approach. Now, so we can have this view of God, and somewhere along this continuum, maybe you'd say, you know, where are you? Where are you on, on this continuum, or on this spectrum, rather? Are you, do you lean towards the side of like, yeah, I... I don't know if I should ever ask God for stuff. I'm not really like a, a super good Christian, so maybe I shouldn't ask God for much. Maybe I should just be glad that I have breath this morning, you know. Or maybe you're on the other spectrum and you think God's sort of, you know, your errand boy, you know. Hey, God, do you mind? I, I kind of need this to work out. Hey, God, I'm running a little late today. I'd appreciate it if you could make the lights green, you know. And may, where are you on the spectrum of prayer. Sometimes we lean towards saying, I really don't ask God for much because I don't feel worthy. Or we say, you know, I'm going to ask God for everything, doggone, because I'm worth it. You know, whatever that is. And so tonight as we talk about this, I want us to think about this. How does Jesus tell us to pray? What does Jesus tell us to ask our Father? And turn with me to Luke 11. I'm going to read actually a good portion of this, not beyond just the prayer. We're going to read from Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through um, verse 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, which is, by the way, a wonderful thing to say. Lord, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to pray. Uh, maybe a lot of our problems with asking God for stuff or not asking God for stuff is we've never asked God the first question, teach us to pray. Maybe that's the question, that's the request that precedes all other requests. That's the petition before all other petitions. 
God, I'm not going to assume that I know what to ask for, so teach me how to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. See this? This is an important caricature that Jesus is, is painting here. Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are already in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of, the, because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, We'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus, as he often does, tells this this, this mini parable here as a way of exposing in their hearts maybe one of the ways that they had come to view God. And he tells this bizarre story of a reluctant friend who, "Ah, I'm not going to do that for you. And imagine in in a Jewish home in the first century where the whole family is sleeping in one common room, probably lying next to each other, which happens a lot in our house. Uh, The kids just somehow end up in our room. And and this guy is knocking on the door saying, help. And the dad's, hey, you know what? My kids are already in bed. Leave me alone. And Jesus is is telling this story perhaps to say, hey, do you think that your God is like that reluctant friend? Do you think that you have to yell and scream and badger him? Do, Do you think he is like that? And the reverse, of course, is the point that Jesus is making. God is not a reluctant friend. God is not a reluctant friend. And then he goes on and says this whole thing about a father giving the gift. And it's this absurd sort of scenario, absurd scenario. Who's going to give a scorpion, you know? Hey, Dad, can I have an egg for breakfast? No, how about a scorpion? You know, who's going to do which, Who's going to do that? And he says, look, even you who are evil, you've got all kinds of junk in your heart. And yet, you've got enough compassion in there to not do that. Do you think God is an evil Father? Do you think God is a reluctant friend? Do you think God is an evil father? Jesus is saying, of course, the opposite. God is not a reluctant friend. God is not a sinful or evil father. This is huge, folks, because how we view God shapes how we pray. Who we think God is affects what we ask of him. What we ask of God, in fact, reveals what we believe about Him. What we ask of God reveals what we believe about Him. And Jesus is saying, who do you think Yahweh is? You think He's this reluctant friend that doesn't want to get up in the middle of the night? You think He's an evil father, a father more wicked than you? No way. No way. 
I wonder sometimes, even listening to the Old Testament reading, the passage from Exodus 34, if you hear that and which part of it you really heard. How many of you really heard the part that he is a gracious, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding? Or did you hear the part about how he visits sins to the third and fourth generation? Which part did you hear? I want to suggest a different view to you than how we normally talk about God's love and God's anger. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about God's love and God's anger as if it's yin and yang. And there's these two equal and opposite sides of God's nature and God kind of holds them together and it's love or anger. It's, it's almost like, you know, the, uh, which, which God is going to answer me today? Is it the angry one or the loving one? And, and he's, these, these equal sides to him. But do you know the way that the Old Testament, even the Old Testament, talks about Yahweh, the Creator God, is not as a person who's got equal parts love and anger? Did you know that? I think that needs to be said. Listen to this again. God's anger and God's love are not equal parts of His nature. Hang on to that phrase and then listen to Exodus 34 again. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. The compa- what is the first thing when God self-discloses, when God says, let me tell you the first thing I'm going to tell you about myself. Moses has prayed, show me your glory. And God says, all right, I'm angry. No, the first thing he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious The God who's slow to anger. It's not the first thing he reaches for, but he abounds. He's got this abundance in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. In another part of Exodus, he says, for a thousand generations, which is a way of saying forever. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Listen to this verse in Lamentations 3. This is likely a reflection of the people of God after they're in exile and they've been punished. They know that God punishes wickedness. They got it. And this is what they say. Even in the midst of that, they write, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. How does a people who've been living as slaves in Babylon and coming back to a city that's in ruins, how does that people who's experienced a kind of discipline of God that you and I probably have never really felt that sort of depth of discipline, how does even that people say, no, no, he shows compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I think that's so interesting. He does not willingly bring grief or affliction. Dr. John Golden Gay, who's the Old Testament chair at Fuller Seminary, proposed a different picture to us than instead of seeing equal parts love and anger and hold them as yin and yang. You know, no, imagine it this way. Imagine it as a circle where the core of his personhood, his personality is Love and compassion and graciousness. And the outer edges of his personality is anger. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever say, I am anger. But he does say, I am love. God is love. That love is this core of his being, 
And anger is the outer edges of his personality. What if that's closer to the picture? We can't graph this out. We can't diagram God. But what if that was the image? And think about all of you, all of us, wicked parents as we are. I, I, I don't love to discipline my kids. I'm not waiting for Sophia or Nora to mess up and say, Aha, I've been saving up a punishment for you. I'm, I'm always reluctant to do it. Maybe too reluctant, I admit. But I'll say to them, especially to Sophia, because she really gets it, I'll say, you know, I, I, I don't want to take this treat away from you. I really don't. But you chose this, and we talked about this. Yes, Dad, but I, you know. And probably, you know, we're crying in the midst. We know I, I'm, he does not intentionally cause grief. Listen, I'm spending a bit of time on this because if we have this view of God, maybe we would actually ask him for something. It's not a healthy view of God to say, well, he's angry and he's distant and he's sovereign, so sit down, shut up, and just take what he gives you. There are other religions in the world that resemble that more closely. One of them is the national religion of the country that I grew up in. Islam centers on the sovereignty of God, but nothing about God's over and abundant compassion. Only in this Judeo-Christian view of God is a God who has so much love, he even loves the wicked and the enemies. Only in our scriptures do we see a picture of a God where it says, while we were yet sinners, God died, Christ died for us. What kind of a God is this? And what kind of things should we ask of him? Maybe we don't pray in a way to ask him for stuff because we don't, we're not sure about that. I want to just go through these three things here tonight that Jesus outlines and kind of give us maybe a little sketch of the kinds of things we can ask for. And the first is this. What should we ask for? Okay, what should we ask for? The first phrase, give us this day our daily bread. This is, in a nutshell, provision. The story that would have been in the backdrop of the, of the listeners as they're hearing Jesus say, you know, yeah, pray, give us this day our daily bread, is no doubt in the back of their minds they're thinking about the story of manna. And they're thinking about the story of, of traveling through the wilderness and, and, and being hungry and God giving them, you remember this story? The stuff that falls down from the sky and they get just enough for each day and the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. It's, a, it's an amazing, miraculous story. And so when Jesus says, pray that the that our Father will give us each day our daily bread. It's a way of saying, remember manna? Remember that whole story? Remember how God gives us just enough? And I, I, I know that um, there is a way to kind of see this spiritually because later on Jesus in John's Gospel talks of himself as the bread of heaven, that he's kind of manna. He's the one that has come down. But I, I feel like it's important to say this pretty clearly. And plainly, Jesus cares, our Father cares about our daily bread. That the Lord cares about our provision. That doesn't mean, you know, Lexuses and additions to houses and all that. I'm, I'm just saying, He cares about your need, your sustenance. But I think something else happens when we pray this prayer. Because you may say, well, I, you know, God, I, I, I don't need, you know, much. You know, I've got a job. I can sort of budget and plan things out, and that's all good. But you know what happens when you begin to pray, give us this day our daily bread? You realize that ultimately 
you depend on Him. That everything you have is a gift from Him. What if you began to see the good things in your life as good gifts? We, we know it. The verse is the Father of lights and from whom every good and perfect gift comes. What, what if we could say that, God, I know that even my daily bread comes from you, and so I, I confess that I'm dependent on you. You know what it does when you begin to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is it removes any kind of self-reliance from the equation. It, 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 it prevents you from fooling yourself into thinking, well, I, I kind of did this. I did this. I read an, uh, um, an academic article recently of, about a guy writing about the loss of praise in our everyday life. It was a very interesting piece. And he talked about how we, have pr- we know how to praise in church. We get, we get praise. Yeah, woo, praise. That's the fast song, right? <laughs> uh, but, but, we, but praise in like daily life is tougher. And he says, maybe because we've replaced praise with congratulations. So someone has a baby and you say, congratulations. What did you do? I mean, really? What happened to saying, thank God for this gift? Thank God for this. What if you began to see that our daily bread, we've got it today because we have a good Father who gives us our daily bread. That's a shift in our way of thinking. Instead of saying, hey, God, yep, pretty cool. And I've got my plan. I, you know, budgeted. I've got this. You know, I'm, no, I'm set, man. I'm set. And that's good. Those are all good things to do. But there's, an heart, there's a heart attitude here. Because to pray for daily bread is to declare our dependence on God. To pray for daily bread is to declare our dependence on God. And conversely, to want to live without any needs, to say, well, I, man, I, I'm living without any needs, is kind of like saying you want to live without God. To live with God is to confess that we depend on it. We need it, God, we need it. Secondly, Jesus says, we pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. We ask for provision, but we also do ask for forgiveness. Sin. It's such a problem, isn't it? You know what's interesting is how when you, think, when you talk to people about someone's mistakes or some stuff, culture, society, and I don't blame them for this, it's just the reality of the world we live in, but, but the, the word sin is, has kind of disappeared from our vocabulary, and so we have better words for it, better words for it, like, um, it's a disease, or it's a dysfunction, or it's a this, or it's a that. Now, to be clear, I love and appreciate the counselors, mental health profession. I think there's, there's a tremendous complexity in who we are as human beings. But there's something that you can never escape in the midst of all of the treatment and care and, 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 and therapy and all that. In the midst of all that, there's one word that you can't stop saying. It's the word Sin that ultimately the root of all of this dysfunction is sin. It's sin. There's something in us. And we tend to think about sin in societal terms. Oh, what shall we do about the crime problem, which we've had a heck of a week here in Colorado Springs in terms of crime on Wednesday night. What, what should we do about this or that? And we, we think on these macro levels of societal problems and psychological treatments and all this stuff. Listen, listen, listen. At the end of the day, those things may all help, but you know that the thing that every human being needs is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because there's one thing that no amount of 
counseling and therapy, as useful as it is in all the different layers and complexities of who we are as human beings, there's one thing that they can't take away from you. It's guilt. Who can take away your guilt? Only Jesus. And this is why it's such a profound prayer to pray. Forgive us our sins. God, I, yeah, I may have this problem and this problem, and I may have this weakness and this personality, you know. But really at the core, God, I've got sin that needs to be forgiven. God's way of dealing with sin in the world is not a way of kind of, you know, massaging it out of us. It's a way of saying, let me scrub you clean and forgive you. But related in this request is this other phrase, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Well, that's a bummer that that's in there. What a troubling, you know, little. (laughs) I think something happens in us as we learn to ask God for forgiveness. We realize that we're all sinners. Big, small, Sin is different. There are different, I don't know, level, degrees of sin in the way that it damages and destroys you and the way that it damages and destroys the people that love you. That's true. However, there's also a sense that we're all sinners before God. And so to pray for forgiveness is to remember that we are all sinners before a gracious God. A gracious God. This is a phrase that I chose on purpose. Not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but sinners before a gracious God. The reason we ask for forgiveness is not because we're hoping that God woke up on the right side of the bed and is feeling all right and maybe he'll forgive. The reason we can come and confess every week here on Sunday night is because we know we will always, always find a gracious God. And so we confess it. Lord, ah, forgive me. And we remember, again, the us here. Forgive us our sins. We're all together in this. There's, the, the problem with not forgiving someone else is it's a way of saying, well, you're that and I'm this. And the choice to not to forgive someone else is a choice to say, you are that and I'm in this circle. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You're all in this circle. And we pray together. Forgive us our sins. Amen? It's the last phrase here. And lead us not into temptation. Uh, providence maybe is, is not quite the word, but it's the closest I could think of that worked with this. Uh, the implication, of course, which is lead us not into temptation, is not that God is looking to find ways to get you to sin. James tells us, look, God's, God's not tempting us in that way. But this word... Uh, particularly in Luke's gospel, is used a lot to talk about testing, uh, particularly when Jesus talks about this great day of testing. And so it could be that Jesus is saying, look, there's a great time of testing coming. Pray that you won't be led into that because you got enough opposition coming your way. Or it could be that, that, that Jesus is saying, look, the very choice to follow Jesus means that there's things that's going to test your faith every day. Every day. The way that you make decisions at work, at home, all, every day there are things that test your faith. 
And Jesus is saying, look, living in opposition to this, the flow of, of, of this world and this culture, there's already enough to pray that, that the Father would not bring you into just a, a whole bunch of it. It's okay to say that. Say, Lord, lead us. Lead us to a place where, you know, we're not just pounded by testing, refining all the time. We know there's going to be some of it. We know it. We, that's what we signed up for. God, but don't, you know, in some ways to pray for God's providence is to trust that God is able to keep us from falling. It's like this verse in Jude, verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and, without, and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, to be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Lead us not into temptation is a way of saying, God, we trust that you will keep us from falling. We trust that you're the one that's able. That doesn't mean you're going to have a sinless streak. You know, you can kind of keep a journal of your sinless streak days, you know. This is to say, Lord, help us. Don't lead us into more than we can bear. And when we do go through testings, make sure, help us, make sure that we come out all right. Make sure that we come out stronger, pure. As we close tonight, I was thinking about this, you know, why, why, um, why have confidence that when you pray for provision or for forgiveness or for God's providence, why have confidence? How do you have confidence that he hears you? How do we know that? I think the answer is in the fact that Jesus is saying our with us. That he doesn't say, this is how you guys should pray, say, you know, my. But there's maybe an implication here that Jesus is praying this with us. It's a deeply held part of our faith that we know that because we are in Christ, we've been made clean. We've been declared righteous. We can come before the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because you're good enough? Because you've, been, you've had a good week this week, so better ask God for stuff this week before next week? No. It's because we're in Christ. And so when we say our Father, we know that Jesus is saying our Father with us. What an amazing thought that He is praying with us. That our Father hears us ultimately because we are in Jesus, the Son. You think the Father hears Jesus? (laughs) Do you think the Father hears Jesus when He prays? Yeah. Am I telling you that, that you can ask for the moon and you'll get it? I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that if you believe that we have a good Father and that Jesus our Savior has made it so that when we pray, our Father hears us. We can ask, Lord, I need bread today. Give me just what I need today. Just enough strength, daily bread. Lord, forgive us our sins. I know you hear that. Lord, don't, don't lead me into more testing than, 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 than I can take. Help, help, help. We can pray these things and know that he hears us because we're joining Jesus in his prayer. That's a beautiful thing. Would you close your eyes and 
bow your heads with me just for a moment, and then we're going to close by praying the Lord's Prayer together. But just stop and think for a moment. Maybe you've, you've stopped praying because in your mind it doesn't quote-unquote work. But prayer's not about it working. Prayer is a demonstration of what we really think about God. So we keep asking. And we keep coming. Because we really believe who He is. Stop and think for a moment. What do you think of God? What do you think of the Father? Are you in Christ? Are you in the Son? Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to pray. Teach us to pray. Not pray just out of the selfishness in our hearts, but to pray what you taught us to pray. To know that you care about our provisions, to know that you care about our, our daily life. To ask. To also know that you forgive. To also know that you lead us. Teach us, God. Make us people who pray. Pray the way that you're teaching us to pray. Make us people who believe in our Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you join us in our prayer. Because you do, we know that God hears us. Because you do, we know that you hear